Well, um, if you have your Bible uh, and you're going to follow along, uh, I'm going to be in, uh, in around first, uh, Second Samuel, excuse me, chapter 15. Uh, we're continuing with this, this uh, series on David, and we're looking a lot at David. And uh, I just want to just kind of recap, because at the, at the heart of it, the reason why we want to talk about David is he's a primary character in the Old Testament. He is celebrated as being a man after God's own heart, and yet his flaws are plainly evident. Zero effort has been given to hide his warts, right? And so you have, you have these like almost contradictory pieces of David, and if, if you and I are honest, we tend to uh, have contradictory pieces of ourselves right? Because, because we love Jesus, right? Uh, but sometimes we get mad and we say things we shouldn't say, right? And so uh, there's a, a, a line or a, not a line, but a clip of uh, the Ellen show. And some lady calls into Ellen. She says, I love Jesus, but I still drink a little. And it's just, it's just hilarious. It's like for her, there's like this, con- I love Jesus, but I cuss a little, she said. Uh, there's this contradiction between the fact that she loves Jesus and there's parts of her that don't quite measure up. With David, we see, especially early in his life, he waited really well. Uh, he didn't just like run and go grab his, you know, kingship. Uh, but then later in life, he waits when he shouldn't wait. He's silent when he should be speaking up. It's it's like his strength became his his weakness. Uh, we also see with David is that he's a man of action. He's a guy who sees Goliath taunting the nation of Israel, and he's like, I'm going to take action. He's the guy who who sees someone being wronged and justice needs to happen. He's going to go take action. But at the other end of it, sometimes David uh, takes action when he shouldn't. He gets mad at somebody for not giving him a meal. He's ready to go murder him in his own house and gets talked out by, at the driveway. He's a he's a guy that has some maybe some, some anger. Uh, he's very severe in his action at times. He's a guy who, who is able to focus so intently on God uh, and see that God is, is the primary like hope. God is a shield. God is his refuge. He's, he's the psalmist, for goodness sake. Like all those psalms about, you know, uh, I've tasted and I've seen that the Lord is good. Those came out of David's mouth. But then you have entire seasons of his life where he seems to forget God and he seems to forget what God is all about. And so we're just kind of working back and forth with David and just looking at uh, some things. And it occurs to me that like we have, we have like his biography uh, given out. And I wonder how fun it would be if we all had like our own biography of all of our greatest pieces and all of our worst failures just there for the public to see. Could you imagine if you had like a newspaper article with just like your name and your information, your family and just everything, and people would read it and they'd talk about like, how weird are you guys? That, that's, that has to be kind of what David goes through. I want to introduce you to a man uh, I've introduced you to uh, once before that I can remember. So it was probably two, three years ago. Uh, so some of you may not remember, but this is James. Uh, this is, this is James right here. Uh, He's a good-looking guy. Um, this is his mugshot. Uh, James was on the FBI's top 10 most wanted list. I believe he was the 72nd person to be on the top 10 most wanted list. Uh, he is on the top 10 most wanted list, not for all of the crimes that he committed, just the last crime that he committed, and that was he broke out of prison and they couldn't catch him. Uh, James was, uh, he led an 11-man escape out of a prison in Alabama, uh, and they hunted him for months and months and months. Uh, James's last name, uh, he went by a lot of different names, uh, but his last name, uh, that he was given is Lofton. This is my great-great-grandfather. Uh, and if you guys read a newspaper report about my family, like we get to do about David's family, you would inevitably see James come up and you're like, my gosh, like, who is this guy? Uh, luckily for me, the elders didn't find him when they did the background check on me. Uh, but this is, this is James. 
It's funny that to talk about James now, like I'm in public right now. I'm talking about James. I'm being recorded for goodness sake. This is going out over the world and in perpetuity will be able to be looked at later in the podcast. And I remember a time in my family, like you don't mention James. You just, you just don't. Uh, this is my grandfather's father. And I remember my grandparents, like it was hush. Like you just didn't talk about his parents. You didn't ask him questions about it. Uh, I remember uh, I was probably 12 or 13 years old before they even told me who my grandfather's father was. And even then it was just like, uh, he was in prison a couple of times and we just don't talk about him. That was it, right? And like I, I became more and more intrigued. Could you imagine how excited I got when I found out he was on the FBI's top 10 most wanted list? That is that is just wild to me. Uh, like I brag about it now. My, my son, uh, who was in here earlier, he's now gone. He'll go to school and he's like, I've got it, I've got it. Here's, here's his mugshot. This is a newspaper article uh, from the day after he was uh, arrested. Uh, and just imagine uh, reading your life, like David and his family and people after him read his life. This is like me reading about my family. Here, he had some uh, aliases that he went by and the newspaper records it. Uh, his name, his real name is James Lofton, but he also went by James Beauchamp, which by the way, I have a new uh, Twitter handle. I will be Jesse Beauchamp from now. That's just such a great name, Beauchamp. Uh, James Vernon Beauchamp. B.J. Jackson was one of his names he would go by. Uh, he, he changed his name to James Lifton at one point, which is not super creative. I can't imagine him getting away for very long. Uh, Robert Douglas Lofton, and he also went by Bob, which is also uh, my alias. If you've ever gone with me to eat at Taco Bell uh, and you have to type in your name on that kiosk, they never get my name right. So I say Jesse, they say Justin back, I just say Bob, and they're like, okay. So I didn't know, like, this is genetic. I got, I got this from him. Here's what it says about uh, oh, oh, granddaddy James. Uh, it says, Lofton was being sought for unlawful flight to avoid confinement for robbery and was one of the leaders of an 11-man mass escape from Atmore State Prison, which there's leadership in my blood, okay, ladies and gentlemen? Like, like he, he is a natural-born leader. It's just, it's been handed down all this time. Uh, an 11-man escape, could you imagine? There was another report I read that says that, I don't know if this is like family lore or whatever, but like he bent the bars with his bare hands to get out. Could you imagine? Like you go get Beauchamp Lofton, like, hey, bend those bars. He just like hulks out on I don't know if that's true or not, but it, it's great to think about. Um, it says uh, in the article here that the order, the arrest order, stated that Lofton should be considered extremely dangerous and that on one occasion he reportedly fired at officers who were attempting to arrest him. On the occasion of one arrest, Lofton reportedly was in possession of a bottle of nitroglycerin, who has that laying around, uh, which he threatened to explode but was forced at gunpoint by the arresting officer to pour the fluid on the ground. The order reported that Lofton escaped from custody on several occasions. He was a slippery little sucker, and he couldn't get him. And he threatened to blow you up with uh, a bomb. This was a, a piece of shame for my family, and I understand if you're really close to it. But for me, it's like, it's so interesting to me. It's like a foreign world. Like, how, how, can, how, can, how can I be related to him? I have, I have no inclination to blow up people or, like, have nitroglycerin. I don't even know how to get it in my hands on it. And yet, and yet, families tend to change over time, don't they? You know, when we read about David and we read about all of his flaws, and so much of my messages have been highlighting his flaws, um, there's, there's a mistake that, that can be had there. And that is, that is you just see the flaws and you dismiss the man. You dismiss the potential. You dismiss what could be. Um, the truth is, is that David is celebrated for a reason. Uh, David is celebrated as a man after God's own heart, not because he didn't have flaws. He had a lot of baggage. He had stuff that was put in the newspaper and he left it for us to see. Uh, the truth about David is that despite his flaws, God is still more powerful. 
And so we're going to look today, uh, if last week is the greatest flaw of David, this is the second greatest. I actually think that this one is worse today. Uh, what we're going to look at today is one of the most heartbreaking stories um, ever recorded in the Bible. It has to be the most heartbreaking story in the story of David. And what I want you to hear isn't just how bad David is. What I want you to hear is, despite how bad you think you are, that if God can turn somebody like David around uh, to write Psalms and to be a, a, a man after God's own heart, then God has the power and capacity to do the same for you. And in your life. Uh, more than that, let me take it a step further. And also the people in our lives that we've dismissed. The people in our lives that we're like, there's just no hope. I don't know, I don't know if he's going to make it. I don't know if so-and-so is going to get sober. I don't know if so-and-so is ever going to, to turn to the Lord. The truth is, is that none of us are capable of running far enough away that God is like, oh, you're just, you're barely out of my grasp. God can bring us back. Um, we're going to start in 2 Samuel 15, which is right in the middle of the story that we're going to read today. And uh, I just want to see kind of how we got here in a moment. So Second uh, Samuel chapter 15, verse 13 says, um, And a messenger came to David, saying, The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Then David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly, and bring down ruin on us, and strike the city with the edge of the sword. When we left David last week, David was securely king of Israel. He had fought this entire time, and now we're in the future, and, and he's losing the kingdom again. That's what we just read, that, that something is happening, and it's time to leave the kingdom. Like, what has happened? What has messed up so catastrophically in David's life uh, for this to have occurred? Uh, we need to kind of place, where are we? Like, how old is da uh, David? David is in his 60s. It's kind of vague, uh, but he's probably between 60 and 62, somewhere in there. Um, he has children who are now adults. Uh, Absalom, uh, you may be surprised, isn't just some random enemy who's uh, coming and taking uh, Israel. If, if you don't know the Old Testament, that name may be foreign to you, but Absalom is actually David's first son. He's his oldest son, and now he's losing the kingdom to his oldest son. He didn't give the kingdom to his oldest son. He's losing the kingdom's oldest son. How did that happen? Well, let's rewind. You know, we're going we're gonna to do a little, little backstory real quick. If you rewound back to chapter 13 and uh, you read it, you would uh, read a story about his other children. I said Absalom was his oldest son. That's not true. He's his third son. Excuse me. Uh, but it, but he, it is his son, nonetheless. Uh, Absalom, uh, David's first uh, son is named uh, Amnon. Uh, and he has a, uh, and then Absalom is his third child. Absalom has a sister named Tamar. So uh, quickly, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to brush over this uh, for the sake of some of the audience that I see here. Um, that that uh, there is a scandal in David's household that he's not quite made aware of right away. But Amnon uh, has it in his head that he is is extremely attracted to his half-sister, Tamar. And through some cunning and deceit, he sexually assaults his half-sister. And Absalom finds out about it. You can read that in chapter 13. It is, it is a heartbreaking, heartbreaking story, very, very vividly articulated. And what you see at the end of that is Absalom is completely angry uh, at Amnon. And uh, they go and talk to David about it. Pick up with me in verse uh, 20, uh, 21, chapter 13, verse 21. So all those things I just mentioned, when David, uh, when King David heard of all these things, he was very angry, but Absalom spoke to Amnon neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. The, the first thing that we see is that whenever they mention it to David, he has a response. What's his response? Anger. I'd be angry too. 
heartbreaking. His entire, like multiple children are now affected by these few results and he is angry. What you don't read though, and what you don't see is that David does anything with this knowledge. What we have right here is the beginning of a family secret that stays a secret. It's everybody in the family knows about it, but nobody in public knows anything about it. Everybody in the family knows about it, but no justice is going to occur. David becomes angry, but David takes no action at all against the uh, uh, the assaulter, takes no action against uh, Absalom later as this goes. What we see is that Absalom is extremely angry, and he, he never speaks to his brother again. He has nothing to say. Verse 23 says, after two full years, how, how long has Absalom been angry at this point? Two years. Now, now we're not just talking like this is the next day. This is, this is the kind of family secret that uh, the family story, the family problem that has been festering for two whole years. It's been there a while. And I think many of us have lived long enough to, that we know that sometimes there are problems that occur in a family that they don't just... You just think, oh, we'll just wait it out. We'll give it some time. It'll sort itself out. This, this is one of those that don't because not all problems sort themselves out. It says, after two full years, Absalom had sheep shears in Baal Hazor, uh, which is near Ephraim. And Absalom invited all the king's sons. So he's getting all of his brothers and half brothers together. And Absalom came to the king and said, hey, behold, your servant has sheep shears. We're going to go like clean some sheep. Dad, come with us, please. Let the king and his servants go with your servant. Now, we don't know this yet, but what we're going to find out is that Absalom is starting to be conniving. He's asking the king in his 60s, hey, dad, we're going to go clean some sheep. You want to come with us? Dad's like, no, not really. That sounds terrible. I have kingy things to do. I've got, I'm going to stay home. And Absalom, we find out later, knew that. Uh, but the king said to Absalom, verse 25, no, my son, let us not all go, lest we be burdensome to you. Like, you go, you kids go have fun. I'd be a burden to you if I come. He pressed him, but he would not go, but gave him his blessing. No, son, you go, you have a good time. Uh, well, I'll see you when you get back. Then Absalom said, well, if, if not you, if not, please let my brother Amnon go with us. And the king said to him, why should he go with you? Now, that's a, this has got to be a, a kind of a, a skeptical moment. He's a little suspicious, David is. Uh, Absalom has not talked to Amnon in two whole years. Every time they have a family gathering, they're in opposite rooms or something. They don't look at each other at meals. David knows what the problem is, but he's not addressing it, and he sees the conflict. And now, all of a sudden, Absalom's like, hey, why don't you send Amnon with us to go clean these sheep? And David's like, mm, why should I do that? He gives him a story. He says, uh, but Absalom pressed him until he let Amnon, come on, Dad, please, please. He let Amnon and all the king's sons go with him. Then Absalom commanded his servants, Mark when Amnon's heart is merry with wine. I'm going to get this sucker drunk and then kill him. When I say to you, strike Amnon, then kill him. Do not fear. Have I not commanded you? Be courageous and be valiant. So the servants of Absalom did as Amnon uh, did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's sons arose and each mounted with mule and fled. Here's what's happened. There was an assault on Absalom's sister. David took no action. He was angry, but he took no action. In two years, it festered in the family until Absalom just decided to act. He goes for revenge instead of justice. Um, and he in, includes not just himself. He didn't quietly like take Amnon off somewhere. He just he gets like all the brothers together, and they just slaughter this guy. It says that, that they, on my mark, they just like pounced him and, and got him. It's, it's heartbreaking what happens here. Absalom kills uh, uh, Amnon 
And David mourns it. He, he grieves this. If you're a parent uh, and you've ever had like a family conflict where it just erupts and you have kids in conflict, you, you have like multiple levels of mourning. Because who, who does David mourn right now? Well, he's, he's going to mourn uh, his daughter who's been violated. He's going to mourn his oldest son who he's having to have the funeral for. And now he has a murderer in his family uh, who's going to run and, and flee. You, you grieve these things. We have, we have compounding grief that is very hard to understand outside of a, a family unit. When uh, Ashley and I lived in Dallas, she had a, a co-worker uh, whose, whose son uh, had, uh, was on death row. And uh, the, the heartbreaking story is that like, they caught him really red-handed. That, that, uh, what had happened is that he was on drugs and had been so strung out that he became really um, paranoid. And he was convinced that someone was trying to break into his house when it was really just the mailman. And he goes outside and he kills the mailman. And they basically find the body of the mailman in, in the yard, in the, in the place where this guy killed him because he was confused and he didn't really try to hide him. And um, when you talk to the mom, she doesn't defend her kid. Her kid was sick and her kid was really bad off in drugs and her kid made a terrible, awful mistake. But you're talking to a mom. She's brokenhearted. It's heartbreaking to see your kids go down roads, even when the mistakes are their own, even when the consequences are their own. It's, it's heartbreaking. In chapter 13, verse 37, we read a little bit about David's grief. It says, But Absalom fled and went to Talmai, the son of uh, Aminahud, king of Geshur. He's like, he's off. He's, he's out of there. And David mourned for his son day after day. So Absalom fled and went to Geshur and was there three years. He's just gone. For three years, Absalom's gone. And the spirit of the king longed to go out to Absalom because he was comforted about Amnon since he was dead. For three years, David is mourning, my murderous son has left, and he's devastated my family, but I miss my son, but I've had to do a funeral for this kid. This is complicated grief, and it's a family secret that, that it's a lot adding up, that if, if David would have had some action ahead of time, maybe, maybe justice could have been had. Maybe somebody could have stopped Absalom. What we see in chapter 14, uh, briefly, I'll just mention it, is that, that Absalom's gone for three years. For three years, he's just gone. Nobody's looking for him. Nobody's trying to get him. Um, Joab, David's general, goes and like kind of coaxes him back, gets him to come back to Jerusalem. And when he gets back, he's in Jerusalem with his dad in the city, and dad continues to ignore him. He won't invite him over for meals. He won't see him. He's like, hey, I'm going to go talk to dad. Dad's gone. Like, he just, he has nothing to do with him. There's a level of shame, a level of, of anger. He, he turns his, his face away from Absalom. In, uh, chapter, uh, 14, uh, verse 28, it says that, so Absalom lived two full years in Jerusalem without coming into the king's presence. David won't see him. He's been gone for three years. He's been in town for two years, and David just refuses to look at his son. Then Absalom sent for Joab uh, to, to send him uh, to the king. He's like, hey, Joab, help me get to the king. I want to see him. But Joab would not come to him. And he sent him a second time. He's like, hey, Joab, let me go see my dad. Let me go see the king. But Joab would not come. Then he said to a servant, see, hey, Joab's field is next to mine, and he has barley there. Go and set it on fire. So Absalom's servants set the field on fire. This sucker's moving to arson, all right? So we've got a guy who has murdered his brother. He has a dysfunctional relationship with his dad. His dad refuses to acknowledge him. His dad refuses to address the elephant in the room. And because he's being ignored, he just amps it up to arson. He's like, go burn that guy's field down. When he's mad at me, he's going to come talk to me. And so he says, uh, go burn the field down. Then, then Joab arose and... Uh, 
uh, went to Absalom uh, at his house and said to him, why have your servants set my field on fire? Why don't you burn my field down, man? Absalom answered Joab, behold, I sent word to you. Come here that I may send you to the king to ask, why have I come from Geshur? It would be better for me to be there still. Now, therefore, let me go into the presence of the king. And if there is guilt in me, let him put me to death. This is Absalom's plan. I'm going to set the field on fire. And when you come and complain to me, I'm going to tell you why I did it. Because you wouldn't come to me. You wouldn't come to me. Now send me to my dad. If there's any guilt, let, let him feel, figure out justice. Like if he wants to, you know, put me in prison for burning your field down, he can do it. That sounds like a good thing for Joab. So Joab does. Then Joab went to the king and told him, and he summoned Absalom. So he came to the king. Absalom comes to the king, and he bows himself on, the, uh, on his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. That's it. That's, that's David's big response. This kid has murdered somebody. This kid has um, uh, uh, left. He has he has burned somebody's field down. He is he is he's a criminal at this point. And the only action David takes so far is that he got angry and he just like forgives his son. No consequence. No no. Let's let's figure this out. No let's get better at this. It's just we're going to we're going to let you just carry on. And so now now he's in the city. What we see is a dad who is not taking any action when there should be action taken. David is kind of being a passive dad. David is not addressing the elephant in the room. And the poison is poisoning the well, and he's ignoring it. He's ignoring the fact that his family is going further, further into uh, contempt. I want to uh, pause before we see what Absalom does here. And I just want to ask, like, where, where did these kids get this from? Like, where did his kids get these behaviors from? Where did they learn how to do this? Well, uh, in some ways, kids just, like, they are their own people, right? Uh, they're, they're awesome parents who their kids are just knuckleheads, and they do knuckleheaded things, and sometimes that happens. But it also strikes me that a lot of these behaviors we see in David in his younger years, uh, there's a there's a phrase uh, I heard someone say recently. It says that Jesus lives in your heart, but Grandpa lives in your bones. And it's this idea that like we tend to, uh, though though we're saved and though we're Christians and though we've been redeemed, we tend to act like our parents. We tend to act like our grandparents. There's something about like family heritage beyond genetics, like behaviors. There's there's a reason why uh, alcoholic grandparents tend to have alcoholic children who tend to have alcoholic children. There's, it's not because they force-fed alcohol on them, but it tends to be that there's behaviors that kind of transpire through families. Have Do we know of any time that David lost his temper and killed someone? Oh, yeah. Oh, there's been a lot. Uh, he, he killed, he killed an extra hundred Philistines just for fun. He tried to murder somebody because he wouldn't fix him and his men a meal at one point. Uh, there, there is an anger problem deep inside David. Do you think his kids picked up on that? Yeah. Yeah. Does, does David have an inappropriate sexual appetite that, that probably should have been checked a few times before this? He absolutely does. Uh, and his kids probably know about it at this point. I mean, it's been, it's been recorded in, you know, first, second Samuel has been, uh, recorded in the Psalms. Uh, at some point his, his family knows about it. And now you see his kids having inappropriate sexual appetites, his kids having inappropriate anger problems, his kids having inappropriate conflict management skills. What we see is that if we don't, if we don't address the poison in the well, uh, it can even be a pretty mild poison. But if you take enough of a mild poison, it will get you too. David, David had opportunities to address the elephants in the room as he's raising these children, as he's raising men, and he doesn't. And now he has a, a jacked up relationship with his third son, Absalom. Absalom is now in Jerusalem. We're in chapter 15, and he has this conspiracy. He's going to try to take his dad's throne. It says in verse 1, 
After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses because kings need chariots and horses. He, he, let's, let's put it in modern terms. He got him a really nice car, right? He got him a really, like, a, like a deep bass, like had a little, little lift to it. You know, it's, it's just not a spoiler, maybe. I don't know. I'm mixing up trucks or in cars, but he got him a chariot and he got him a horse. He got him 50 men to run before him. He just looks like a king now. And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, hey, from what city are you? And when he said, uh, your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, see, your claims are good and right, but there's no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, oh, that I were a judge in the land, then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. It would help if we understood the culture a little bit. If you, if you uh, today have someone steal your, uh, I don't know, your horse, um, you would go, you'd call the police or something. Then you would go to the judge, right? You go to the judge, you're like, hey, I have a claim. I want to sue my neighbor. He stole my horse. The way you did that there is that if it was, it was an important enough claim, you would go to the king. The king's job is to sort this out. What Absalom would do is that he would stand at the city. And when he saw someone coming in to talk to the king, he's like, hey, Hey, what, what, what do you have going on? It's like, hey, I'm from, and he would name a city. I'm, I'm from Port Natchez. And he would say, oh, I'm so sorry. Man, I hate it because you're from Port Natchez. Uh, if, if, if you're anywhere else, I'm sure the king would hear you. But the king hasn't designated anybody to listen to a claim from Port Natchez. But I tell you what, man, if I were the guy, I would probably rule in your favor. It sounds like you, you're right. I, 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 would, I would get you justice so fast, it'd be crazy. Sorry about your problems. You need to go on your way. And person after person, claim after claim would come in, and he's just slowly racking up this like uh, political power, this political currency. And then one day, he decides to act on it. One day, he decides, I am king, and he, uh, he takes... The throne. That's where we read, go back to verse 13, chapter 15, verse 13. And a messenger came to David saying, the hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Then David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, arise and let us flee or else there will be no escape from Absalom. The way we got to this point, this is the first verses we read today. The way that we got to this point is that time after time, David failed to address the elephant in the room. The family secret didn't stay a secret. It just kept festering. And becoming a problem. It got worse and worse. It got compounded after murder and then deceit. And now Absalom is moving to take the throne. And he takes, he takes his dad's throne. And David decides, instead of fighting this man, instead of trying to fight for my throne, all the people are on his side anyway. He's been, he's been conspiring for years at this point. Um, I'm just going to go. I'm going to go. I'm going to live in the wilderness uh, like I did before. David is not a young man anymore. When he was 20, living in the wilderness, running from Saul, he was good at it, and he fought a lot, but now he's, he's, he just, he's going, and he's back to where he began. While he's gone, uh, Absalom does some awful, horrific things. You can read about it. He gets a guy to give him some counsel. He's like, hey, what should I do to, to secure my right to dad's throne? He's like, you should go get your dad's concubines and sleep with them in public in the town square. And so Absalom did. This is, this is not something that godly men do. He is out after his dad's uh, reputation. He's wanting to, to deceive him. And now the entire nation is devolving into civil war again. David's been king. He is the second king of Israel, and it's the second civil war in his kingship that they've had. It is, it is a hard, hard time. 
At the end of it, though, there's some battles, there's some fighting. There's a lot of death. You can read that on your own. But if you fast forward all the way to chapter 18, um, we see that Absalom is about to get caught. Here's, here's where we'll close today. Uh, chapter 18, verse 5. And the king ordered Joab, Abishai, and Ittai. These are three generals. What's happened here is that he's got just a few men left, and he divided his men into three armies, uh, and he's talking to the three generals in front of the armies. And he says, uh, uh, Joab, Abishai, and Ittai, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave orders to all the commanders about Absalom. He's saying, hey, go fight this fight. You have to do what you have to do. If you get a chance to kill Absalom, just don't. Please, he's my kid. Don't do it. I prefer that you not hurt him. I prefer that he not have to feel any, any consequence from this. So the army went out into the field against Israel, and the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. And the men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David, and the loss there was great on that day. It is a, it is a bloody fight. 20,000 men. Then battles spread over the face of all the country, and the force devoured more people that day than the sword. This is a fight that, like, after the men who were designated to fight are finished, they're, like, just, like, towns. And, like, people's wives are just getting up with, like, a broom and just getting into a fight. If you're on David's side, you would fight for David. If you're on Absalom's side, you would fight. Little 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 villages would just get after it, and just it spread over the countryside. It is a nasty war, all because a dad wouldn't address some problems in his family. And Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. As it spread, it got close to Absalom, and the servants of David see him. Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak, and his head caught fast in the oak. And he was suspended between heaven and earth while the mule was under him went on. And the imagery is almost comical, if not so tragic. Uh, Absalom's like, he sees David's mate. He's like, I gotta get out of here. He like starts kicking the mule. Hey, come on. Yeah. And he takes off. He goes into the forest and an oak tree. He's like going under the oak tree and it gets all caught up in his hair. And the horse just keeps going. It yanks him off of the horse. And now he's just stuck hanging from a tree. I saw some images uh, like during the, I don't know, Renaissance era. They're painting all these paintings. There's a painting of Absalom and it's like he's got these long, like dreadlock kind of things. And it's all like wrapped up in the branches and the birds are looking at him. It's kind of crazy. Um, but the scripture says that he's just stuck. He's running away from this battle and he gets stuck. And it says in verse 10, and a certain man saw it and told Joab. It's like, he goes, he sees Absalom hanging from the tree. He's like, I can go tell somebody. And he says to Joab uh, that he saw it. And Joab said to him, uh, the man, he told him, he says, what, you saw him? Why then did you not strike him there to the ground? I would have been glad to give you 10 pieces of silver and a belt. I would have given you a reward. You would, you'd be rich right now if you just killed the guy. And uh, the man said uh, in verse 12, Even if I felt in my hand the weight of a thousand pieces of silver, I would not reach out my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing, the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, for my sake, protect the young man Absalom. He's like, I heard what the king said. I'm not going to be the one to kill his son. I, I'm not. On the other hand, if I had dealt treacherously against his life and there is nothing hidden from the king, he would have found out. You can't keep this a secret. Then you yourself would have stood aloof. Joab said, I will not waste my time like this with you. He just quits listening to him. And he takes three javelins in his hand and he thrusts them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak. Then 10 young men, Joab's armor bearers, surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. It is not, it is not an execution. It is, it is destructive. Like the people are at war and they're going at it. There's just evil and wickedness all the way through. If you continue reading, um, you'll read about this, this crazy grief that David has. 
it makes sense because if you're a dad and your son does, even if he does wicked things, you don't want to see him die from it. You don't want to see the consequences of him. And now he gets a report that his son is dead. And it says that the grief was so thick, like he just mourns it. He goes back into Jerusalem. He gets his throne back. He's now king over Israel again. The second time he's made it to king over all of Israel. But is it a win? Is it a victory? He just mourns and he grieves. He grieves so much so that Joab goes to him and says, if you don't stop grieving, this entire nation is going to turn on you. They're going to give up on you. They're going to give up on this kingship and I can't stop them. And so David has to turn off the waterworks and he has to just put on a good face. And he goes in front of the people to celebrate this victory that he's back in his, in his throne. Here, here's the, the problem with, with all of it is that even, even what should have been a victory, what everybody looked at as a victory, David made it back to his throne. It was a loss. It was, it was painful. Because, because there was sin and there was corruption in the family. There was elephants in the room that weren't addressed. When, when we let things fester, listen, when we let things fester, there's going to be these ebbs and flows of conflict and resolution, conflict and resolution, conflict and resolution. Um, and some of them look like wins, some of them look like hard uh, uh, losses. But, but for those of the people that are in it, it is all loss. Thousands of people died in a war that could have been prevented if David would have just dadded one time and said, no, son, you're going to have to pay a consequence. Like, you can't, you can't do these things. Um, and and he, he just didn't. David saw in his children exaggerated versions of his own unaddressed failures. This is true of, of all of our families. When, when David ignored in himself the sins, the corruption in himself, he later sees multiplied in his household, in his kids, and how they acted. What, what we should read here is, one, a tragedy of how David's life is bookended by, by heartbreak, how David's life has all of these moments of grief. Uh, what we should also read here is a warning to ourselves that when we have conflict in our household and our families, it, and we either address it or we let it grow and it fester. There's a reason why I'm up here and I'm not on the FBI's most wanted list. It's because someone addressed it in my family at one point or another uh, and says, hey, we're not going to be criminals. We're not going to be a family of criminals and we're going to move to Texas and, you know, all these things. I'm so thankful for that, right? Um, but we also know families that it's, it's their entire lineage, like they're just all knuckleheads, right? Uh, there's an invitation in Scripture when, when we're following the Lord, when we're trusting his ways to address these things. Our home is an incubator of both our greatest virtues and our greatest vices. Your kids will grow up to be the best version of you and the worst version of you if you don't address those worst bits. And there's really nothing you can do about it. David didn't teach his kids to have sexual sin. They just picked it up. David didn't teach his kids how to be murderers. They just picked it up. David didn't teach his kids how to run from God and to ignore his ways. They just picked it up. You didn't teach your kids how to be a knucklehead. They just picked it up. Our homes are incubators of our greatest virtues and our greatest vices. If you're not, uh, if you're, if, if you don't have children, uh, it's still true. Your home is where you are your truest self. When you go to work, you put on your best face. When you go to church, oh my gosh, you put on your really great face. Uh, and you look great here. Like I, I see zero sinners here. But when you're at home, that version of you is the real version of you. That version of you is the one that is getting kind of grown and cultivated. That version of you is the one you're either addressing issues or you're ignoring issues. But we all have the issues, right? We all have things that we need to work on. What? Here's a, a le legitimate question, a real question for you. Um, what are you cultivating in your home? 
Ponder that this week. What, what are you cultivating in your home? What do you see in your children that you remember from your childhood? You're like, man, I wish, I wish we would have addressed that. What do you, what do you see in your spouse uh, that you saw in your parents? What do you, what do you see in your relationship with your coworkers? Um, that it just, it kind of tends to repeat itself, right? Yeah, sure. You switch businesses. You switch, you switch companies. This, this place is so toxic. I've got to get out of here. And you get over here and it's the same toxicity. The exact same behaviors are over here. What, what is the common denominator? What, what are you not addressing? There, there are times in our lives, and this is true of everybody because we've all sinned and we've all gone astray. We, though we may have Jesus in our hearts, we still have grandpa in our bones. Um, what is it in our families of origin that we need to address so that we stop cultivating it? Nobody wants to grow uh, a garden of mushrooms, unless you're some hippie or something, but nobody wants to grow like fungus. Uh, fungus comes from decaying things. Fungus comes from uh, you know the rotting thing in, that's buried in the ground, and the only way to stop it is to get the rotting thing out, is to work on the soil. What are you cultivating in your home? I suspect that while David was on the run um, in those two, three years where he didn't have his throne and Absalom is running amok, he is very conflicted. Do I want to fight for my throne and get back what God told me I had? Or do I, do I want to protect my kid and not let him face the consequences of his decisions? He's conflicted all the way through. At the end, you can see some insight into how David thought about it. Uh, several psalms are attributed to that season. Uh, if you read them, the context clues tend to point to that. Psalm 63 is one of them. But Psalm number three, the one, two, three, the third psalm, literally from David's hand, it says, this is a psalm of David written about the time Absalom is chasing me. And it talks about, I trust God. Uh, I'd invite you to read Psalm 3 later, but for now, for, for us today, I would encourage you, think about what you're cultivating. Think about uh, what, what is growing in your home, and know this, know this, is that even after this story, David is still called a man after God's own heart. He's still remembered as a man who was able to point people back to God. We have one more week of the series in David, and we're going to see why that is and how that happens, but here's, here's the truth that we need to walk away from is that even if there are things in our homes that we're cultivating that we wish weren't there, or our kids are already grown, it's already cultivated, and now that's bearing fruit as well, it's still not too late. Why? Because God is on the throne. It wasn't up to you. Continue to give it over to him and trust him, uh, and you will see that, that there is, is redemption possible. Uh, let me pray, and we'll watch the cue together. Father, um, we come to you on the back end of uh, what is a heartbreaking and tragic story. Um, maybe even reminding us, uh, reminding us of trauma and tragedy in, in our own families and our own lives. Uh, Lord, help us to uh, be men and women who, who know when to speak up and know when to address uh, the elephants in the room. Help us to cultivate in our homes and in the truest places of ourselves. Help us to cultivate a real relationship with you. Um, not just to show for others, help us to help us to deal with unaddressed sin in our lives, uh, so that we're not cultivating that in in the ones that are around us and in our in our children. Uh, Lord, we pray your protection over our homes, and we pray that our homes, um, the homes just represented in this room, would uh, cultivate and grow a passion for you uh, that would spread through our community, and that would be a place of refuge and a place of peace for our children and our children's friends and our community. Um, we trust that you can do that and much more. Uh, help us in our weakness. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.